that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. It's been, uh, I haven't seen you since last year, so uh, it's good to be back. For those of you who uh, may have forgotten where we were, we are in Acts chapter 19 today. Um, Luke's account of Paul's visit to Ephesus. And so we're going to go ahead and read through the first 22 verses, and then we will come back and take a closer look at what happened here in these opening months in Ephesus, and then we'll... If we have time, move on into the latter part of the chapter, which deals with the great riot that took place at Ephesus and the result of that riot for the Christian faith. So, Acts chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that were touched with his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced, practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Ephesus was one of the great cities of the ancient world. And as you can see from the image on the screen, it is still an impressive place to behold. Uh, some of you I know have 
no doubt been to Ephesus. It's one of the, the great ruins of the ancient cultures. Uh, it's a magnificent city. That's the great library that sits in Ephesus at the end of the great Cardo, the main thoroughfare going down through Ephesus. It's an extraordinary place to be. I don't think I've ever been to any place that is quite like it. I've been to some remarkable places in the Holy Land, uh, but Ephesus really is unique. And in some respects, it's rather remarkable that the Apostle Paul hadn't been here already because we've said that part of his strategy was to visit the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world and establish a Christian presence in those places in the hopes that they would become means by which the gospel would spread throughout the ancient world. But you have to remember that Paul actually did intend to go to Ephesus on a prior occasion, but was prevented from doing so. We're told that he had longed to go to Ephesus, but for one reason or another, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus had prevented him from doing so. So that Paul was forced to go into Europe instead and visit the great Greek cities, Athens and Corinth and so forth. So by the time you get to Acts chapter 19, Paul is finally making a journey to Ephesus. And as I said, it's no wonder that he longed to go there. Uh, what was Ephesus in the ancient world? Well, like some of the other cities that we've already seen, in particular Corinth, it was a very strategic city. Uh, to begin with, it was a port city. Just as Corinth was a port city on that isthmus, between the northern parts of Greece and the Peloponnese to the south. So Ephesus was also a great port city. Now if you go to Ephesus today, you'll notice that you're about three or four miles from the coast. That was not the case when Paul went there in the first century. It was right on the coast. Over the succeeding centuries, the harbor silted up. And when it silted up, Ephesus lost its commercial value. And it sort of faded into memory. But when Paul was there, it was right there on the coast, and it was at the height of its glory. It was also one of the largest cities in the ancient world. It had in excess of 300,000 people. Now that may seem like a rather small city to us today, but by ancient standards, that made it an enormous city. So it's a strategic location. It is a large population. And like Corinth, it was very cosmopolitan. Uh, it had a huge Colosseum there, about a fourth the size of the Rose Bowl. And uh, the Colosseum is still there today. You can go. I had the great privilege a number of years ago of preaching in that very Colosseum. So Ephesus was a sight to behold. It was a place that was very attractive to the people of that time. But the thing that was most impressive about Ephesus and the thing that everybody marveled at was the great temple that was there. We said that when you went to Corinth, Paul found a great temple there to Venus or to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Well, almost every ancient city, Roman city, city of the Roman Empire at least, Greek or Roman, had temples in them. This was a great age of idolatry, and there was a great temple, one of the wonders, in fact, of the ancient world located there in Ephesus. People traveled from all over the empire just to visit this one temple. It was not dedicated to Aphrodite or Venus, the goddess of love. Instead, it was dedicated to Artemis, or as she was also known, Diana, who was the goddess of the hunt. 
And um, you can see by that image on the screen that it was a remarkable temple. Now, if you go to Ephesus today, it's no longer there. Uh, many of these temples were torn down. And we'll talk a little bit about how idolatry passed from the ancient world. But at the time that Paul went there, it would have been the most prominent building in the city. The importance of Ephesus is borne out for us in the book of Revelation. Uh, you'll recall that there were the seven letters written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Well, it's interesting to note that of all the churches addressed, Ephesus leads the list of those seven churches, which tells us that from an ancient standpoint, not only the city, but the church that was established there in Ephesus was considered to be of the greatest importance. So that's a little bit of background about Ephesus, this place that Paul was going to visit, a remarkable city, an important city, and a place where Paul, if he could establish the gospel, would make a profound difference on the world. Well, we've already talked about Paul's strategy. His strategy was to evangelize the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. But if you're going to have a strategy, you better have tactics as well. Those of you who have a military background, you understand the distinction between. Strategy is your overall grand plan. Paul's overall grand plan was to do what? Well, it was to evangelize the ancient world in fulfillment of Jesus' great commission. Take the gospel into all the world, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That was the last words. Those were among the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, and that is what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to turn the world upside down. And he decided to do that, but as I said, concentrating on the great cities. But once you got into the cities, what were Paul's tactics to, fulfillment, to fulfill that strategy? Well, Paul would always do three things. First thing he would do is he would go into the community and he would preach the word of God. Now, depending upon who he was dealing with in the population, he might do that in a slightly different way. We're told that when he went in and there was a Jewish community, he would oftentimes go to the synagogue and he would reason with the Jews. Remember that? But it's interesting to note that he always reasoned, we're told, what? From the scriptures. I think it's very important because we're living in an age in which people think that if you're going to get people, if you want to bring them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you've got to use the means of the world. And you see this in, in, in many places today. Um, up in the hallway outside my office, there is um, a piece of St. Philip's history. It's a circular that was published in 1838, uh, maybe 1835, 1836, somewhere in the 1830s, following the second fire when St. Philip's burned to the ground. And there was an appeal by the rector and by the congregation or the vestry to rebuild the city, rebuild the church, rather, in grand style. Uh, I've got a painting in my office of the second St. Philip's Church, an interior painting. And the second, or the first, rather, uh, no, the second St. Philip's Church. How many of them been, have there been? I mean, just so many. But the second St. Philip's Church was an impressive building. You know, the first one burned where St. Michael's is. The congregation moved over here. They built a second church, and the second church was an impressive building, let me tell you. And this is an interior shot. We've got the burning of St. Philip's. You know what that looks like. The outside, it was impressive. But the inside was impressive. And yet in this circular where they are calling for the rebuilding of the church, a third church, they want to rebuild it in grand style, even grander 
than the second building. Why did they want to do that? Because they said they wanted it to be a monument to the glory of God, something that would draw people's minds and hearts and imagination toward the transcendent Lord of the universe. See, people understood that architecture matters. It's, it's not just function, it's form as well. There's power in symbolism. Well, so oftentimes you see in churches today, there, there's just sort of this utilitarian approach to things. People don't have that sense of the glory, the majesty, the greatness of God. And that's reflected in the way that we worship sometimes. It's more about entertaining people than it is instructing people. I like it very interesting that when Paul went into a community, the first thing that he did not do is miracles. We're fascinated by the extraordinary, by the fantastic, by the miraculous. People want to see that sort of thing. They want to go to churches where the fog machine comes out and the lights are flashing and, you know, there's somebody in, in, in the drum cage and all of that sort of thing. And I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. If you go to one of those churches, don't be offended. But what I am saying to you is that oftentimes that's what we're trying to win them with. And there's an old expression that says, what you win them with is what you win them to. The Apostle Paul did not go into a community and try to win them with miracles. Now, miracles took place. Great miracles took place. In fact, we're told that Paul was preaching the word and sometimes even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched him were taken back to the sick and people were healed. So miracles took place, don't get me wrong, but Paul didn't start with miracles. He started with what? With the Word of God. That's the first thing I want you to notice. When Paul went into an area to evangelize that area, to establish a Christian community in these great cities, he started with the Scriptures. I believe that we have to start the same way. I've said to you all along that the book of Acts is not simply a record of what has happened in the past. It is a blueprint for ministry today. The strongest churches, now I'm not talking about the biggest churches. You know, if you want to just build a church and have lots of people that come out to it, there are any number of ways to do that. My goodness, you can fill a stadium with people who go to a rock concert. So if you just want to have lots of people, well, there's a way to do that. But if you want to have a strong congregation of people who are serious about the faith, who are serious about evangelism, who are serious about taking the culture and turning it inside out, then you have to start with the scriptures. It's been said of American Christianity that we're about 3,000 miles wide and about half an inch deep. And that's probably true. Not just of American Christianity, but much of the Christianity that we experience in the West. Paul was not interested in that. He was interested not in simply going broad, but in going deep. And so he started with the Scriptures. That's the first thing he did. And it was out of this teaching of the Scriptures that oftentimes a church was established. Now, when we think of a church, we generally, as I said, think of a building. That was not the case in these cities where Paul established churches. Uh, we're told, for instance, that he went into Ephesus. He started in the synagogue. When he faced some opposition in the synagogue, he went where? To the lecture hall of Tyrannus. 
Uh, the word that is translated as lecture hall is a very interesting word. It's the Greek word skoula, the word from which we get our term school. So the lecture hall of Tyrannus was a school, probably a private academy, and Tyrannus, the headmaster or the owner of this school or the teacher or whatever he was, probably leased the building out to people and he probably leased it out to the Apostle Paul and Paul lectured there. That's probably as close to what we get as a church in the book of Acts. But for the most part, these churches that Paul established were home churches, house churches, small communities of people that gathered in each other's homes to read the scriptures, to break the bread, and to share the good news. That's a good reminder to us of what it means to be the church. We get very uh, attached to places, and that's understandable. And of course, some of that's being shaken up right now, isn't it, in the midst of what's going on in our own parish and in the diocese at large. But it's important to remember that when the Apostle Paul established churches, churches, by the way, that would change the world. In about three centuries, the world would look completely different from the way it did when Paul first went into these cities. But the churches that were established were small communities. They met in homes. God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands and where two or three are gathered. What? He is there in the midst of them. So the first thing Paul did when he went into a place like Ephesus or Corinth is he preached the word of the, God, of the Lord. And that is exactly what he did here in Ephesus. And as a consequence of preaching the word of the Lord, people's hearts were converted and a church was established. And you'll discover as we go through the book of Acts that these churches would then become the means for further outreach into the region, into the community, into the world at large. So Paul had a grand strategy, and he had a number of tactics that he used to fill them in. Now, it's helpful to look back a little bit and see how it was that Paul came to Ephesus. Uh, in Acts chapter 18, the chapter that precedes this, we're told that Paul had passed through Ephesus on his way back to the church in Antioch, which tells us that he had gone through here on a bit of a reconnaissance mission. And we're told that when he passed through Ephesus, he found that the people were eager to hear the word of the Lord, and so he left behind some helpers. And you'll recall that those helpers were Priscilla and Aquila, and a young man that came to assist them by the name of Apollos. I think that's important because it reminds us that the work of the church is never to be done by one individual. Paul didn't do this by himself. You'll notice that when Jesus sent out his disciples, he always sent them out what? Two by two. Now, I think there are any number of reasons for that. One is because oftentimes the job is just too great for one person. Now, it is true that sometimes God takes us and places us in a place where we are all by ourselves. But generally, he doesn't leave us there. Sooner or later, he brings other people alongside to assist us and to help us. And I've already talked to you about this. That is because we human beings are not meant to be solitary creatures. The places where we grow the most in terms of our relationship with God is in community. I've always said that God's greatest means of sanctifying an individual is marriage. <laughs> you want to talk about being transformed and being forced to rely on God and not live for yourself? Get married. 
It is the context by which God oftentimes shaves off those sharper edges and transforms us into the image that he wants us to be. The same is true in the church. It may be that you and I don't necessarily like other people. There are times when we don't want to be around other people, but it doesn't change the fact that we need other people and we learn from them. And yes, iron sharpens iron, and sometimes there are sparks. But it's nevertheless true. And this is why the New Testament says, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You know, people will say, well, I don't need to go to church. I mean, it's just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, you'll be in good company then. <laughs> Aren't we all to some degree? So you'll notice that Paul went and he left behind other workers and those workers would assist him. Indeed, they would lay the foundation for his ministry. We've already said that he taught the Bible. I emphasize the fact that he taught the Bible. It doesn't say that he necessarily preached. Now, of course, he did preach. But I want to put the emphasis here on teaching. Uh, there was a very famous Cambridge scholar by the name of C.H. Dodd. And Dodd made a distinction between two types of material in the New Testament, what he called kerygma, a Greek word which means proclamation, and a word didache, which means instruction. And what C.H. Dodd said was that in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, you have kerygma, proclamation, uh, the good news of what God has done in Christ, what we would call preaching, preaching for a decision. He said, but the other type of material in the New Testament is what you find in the epistles. In Paul's epistle to the Romans or to Ephesus or to the Corinthians, it's instruction. He said there's a distinction between the two. One is, is the good news of what Christ has done, and the second type of material are the implications of what that means for your life. I think that is a helpful distinction. But I wouldn't press it too hard. It appears that Paul did preach Jesus Christ. In other words, he went in and he preached this, that everybody was a sinner in need of a Savior, and that God had made a means by which we could be reconciled to the Father, and that means was Jesus Christ. That was the gospel, in a nutshell. And that's what Paul preached. But then he said, once you come into a relationship with God, there are implications for what that means for your life. It's not just a matter of getting your ticket punched and going to heaven when you die. So Paul didn't just preach the gospel, he preached or taught the implications of the gospel. And I think that that is one of the things that the church needs more than anything else. There are many churches that are preached to. People recognize that they're sinners. They recognize that they need a Savior, but they don't understand what the implications of that are for their lives. And as a consequence, they don't make any difference in the world whatsoever. Keep your finger there in the book of Acts and turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a minute. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 is a very famous section. This, incidentally, was the letter that Paul would write to this church. Later on, he would write back to this church, and that's something we're going to talk about in a minute. And this is the letter that he wrote to them. And he has this very famous passage in it. You're probably very familiar with it if you've been 
raised here at St. Philip's for any length of time, you know this passage. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How many of you have ever heard that passage before? That's what Martin Luther calls the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. The doctrine of the standing church. Ustitia Dei. And it's a wonderful passage. Many people memorize it. We teach it in Sunday school, in VBS. It's one of those passages that you want to hide in your heart as God's people. But I've always thought it odd that many people don't know the next verse. We all know that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man may boast. But we've been saved from something, but Paul goes on to say saved for something. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God saved us, but he saved us for a purpose. And what's the purpose? Not a trick question here. What's the, what, what is it? You've been saved for what? Good works. You've been saved for good works. Now, when we talk about good works, what are we talking about? Being nice people? Being respectable people? Upstanding citizens? No. Whenever the New Testament talks about good works, what it means is works that bring glory to God. So you've been saved from something, from sin, from judgment, but you've been saved for something, for good works for the glory of God. You've been placed on this planet for a purpose, and your purpose is to bear witness by your words and by your deeds to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his saving purposes. Now, that's a passage that many people don't know. And that's one of the dangers of sometimes taking a passage out of its context. You can make the Bible say almost anything you want it to say, can't you? But Paul makes it very clear here, we have been saved for a purpose, and he taught the people what that purpose was. Here's a quote from John Stott, very helpful. Paul said, uh, John Stott said, we not only preach the word, but we are called to teach the word, or rather, to preach it with all teaching. The Christian pastoral ministry is essentially, listen to this, essentially a teaching ministry which explains why candidates are required both to be orthodox in their own faith, but also to have an aptitude for teaching. There is an increasing need, especially as the process of urbanization continues and standards of education rise, for Christian ministers to exercise in the teeming cities of the developing world a systematic, expository preaching ministry to proclaim the word with all teaching. Now, if you're wondering why I'm here, that's why I'm here. I think that that is the thing that the church needs more than anything else. It is not enough to know that you've been saved. You have to understand why you've been saved and realize that God has redeemed you for a purpose. And he has a plan for your life 
But that plan is not for you just to enjoy things. You have been called to serve, not on a cruise ship, on a battleship. And that's exactly what Paul was teaching these people there in Ephesus. He taught the Bible to them. And this is the reason why we're going through. Somebody came up to me yesterday and they said, Bible study's on tomorrow. And I said, yes, it is. And they said, we're still in Acts? And the answer is, yes, we're still in Acts. And we're going to work our way through Acts. Somebody said, well, when, when are we going to finish up with Acts? When we finish up with Acts. <laughs> it generally takes me about two years to get through the book of Acts. Um, the people that say, Helen is used to ask, you know, are you going to stay here for a while? Are you going to be here for a while? I said, look, there are certain books that I want to get through with every congregation. I said, I want to always teach the Gospel of John to a congregation, and I always want to teach the Epistle to the Romans to a congregation. It took me five years to get through the Gospel of John. It took me four years to get through the Epistle to the Romans. So that's nine right there. And then you add two years to get through the book of Acts. I said, I'm, I'm with you for at least 11 years. <laughs> now you might say, well, that's a little heavy-handed, my gosh. I, I've got this little devotional that gets me through the book of Acts in 30 days. <laughs> Maybe two weeks for all I know. I, I get all of that. But you know, people spend their whole lives dedicated to what? To the study of William Shakespeare. And we don't think anything of that. We think, well, that's a worthy endeavor. I used to have a man in one of my congregations who spent his entire career as a professor of, Eng professor of English at the main campus of USC in Columbia studying nothing but the poetry of Robert Burns. How many of you know the poetry of Robert Burns? Well, let, let's hear it. Give me a line. <laughs> really? The only thing we know is old Lang Syne. That's the only thing we know. He spent his whole year studying, his whole life studying Robert Burns. When we fly through a book of the Bible quickly, what does that say? It basically is saying there's not much here. Hopefully what you're beginning to realize is there's an awful lot there, a lot more than I thought was there. And I discover every time I go back to a book, even though I've taught it before, I find more and more. You can mine the scriptures for your whole life and never exhaust its treasures. And that's exactly what Paul did. If you want to be a part of a church, you can be a part of a church that is big and maybe even spirit-filled, but if you want to be a part of a church which is really going to make a difference in the world, that church has to have a strong teaching ministry. It's the pattern that Paul set forth for the ancient world. It's the pattern for us today. So he taught the Bible. He also taught the Bible to all kinds of people. We're told that he taught to the disciples of John the Baptist. That's one of the things that we noticed here in the opening part of this chapter. He came upon 12 men. He asked them if they had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And what were you baptized in? We were baptized by John into a baptism of repentance. And so what did he do? He explained to them the good news of Jesus Christ. The coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. This is how this book of Acts begins. So Paul taught to the disciples of John the Baptist, the fuller, more intensive means of the gospel. We're told in Acts chapter 19, verse 8, that he taught to the Jews. He went into the synagogue and he preached to them as well. 
Now, they didn't always accept the message, and eventually Paul was forced to leave the synagogue, but he went in there and he preached the word to them, didn't he? We're told that he preached to the Gentiles. When he was rejected there in the synagogue, we're told that he went into this lecture hall, this school of Tyrannus, and he preached to the Gentiles. And within the Gentile community, there were all kinds of people. There were many people who were involved in the occult. We're going to see that that was a big part of life in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world. And Paul preached to those who were involved in the occult. He didn't cut them out and say, oh, well, I don't want to have anything to do with those people. No, Paul went in for people just like that, and he preached to those who were involved in the occult. He also preached to the business class, preached to business leaders, to leaders, civic leaders in the community. In other words, Paul preached to all kinds of people. He didn't confine himself to a particular type of people, to PLU. You know what I mean by PLU? People like us. He preached the gospel what? To every creation, to every creature, to every person. Are we willing to do that? You know, sometimes, and, and this is natural, we find ourselves attracted to people that are like us. We're more comfortable with people like us. But Paul preached the gospel to everybody without charge. If you ever go to Pittsburgh, go downtown someday and visit the First Presbyterian Church of Pittsburgh. <clears throat> it sits right next to Trinity Cathedral, which is the Episcopal Cathedral. I was ordained in that cathedral. It's a remarkable building. These two buildings are side by side, and they are both impressive buildings. In fact, they are so close, they actually adjoin at one point. The buildings are so close, and they share a churchyard. Presbyterians and Episcopalians sharing a churchyard. How about that? <coughs> but as impressive as the cathedral is, the Presbyterian church is even more impressive. Uh, it's a big Gothic church. They call it the Cathedral of Calvinism. And it has these magnificent Tiffany windows. Everything above the balcony pertains to heaven. Everything below pertains to the Lord's work on earth. But the thing that I love most about that cathedral is the pulpit. It has two pulpits. One inside the church and a great stone pulpit outside the church that hangs above the street. And they had a great minister at one point back in the 20s by the name of Clarence McCartney. And Clarence McCartney was the pastor of that church and general moderator of the United Presbyterian Church. And he had a great gift for teaching. And he was always looking for opportunities to teach the Word of God. And he recognized that at the noon hour when all the businessmen were making their way down the street to the Duquesne Club for lunch, that he had an opportunity and he seized it. And they built him a great stone pulpit and he would stand there on the street as they were going to lunch preaching the gospel to them. And he helped transform the city of Pittsburgh. Somebody who came after him, Sam Shoemaker, said as a result of what Clarence McCartney did in Pittsburgh, he had his own vision for Pittsburgh, and that was to make that city as famous for Christ as it was for steel. Isn't that a wonderful vision? Dr. McCartney believed in what? Preaching the gospel in season and out of season to every creature imaginable, and that is exactly what Paul did. He taught to everybody. Here's something else about Paul. He not only preached to everybody, he preached for a long time. We're told that, first of all, he preached for two years in Ephesus. 
That's the longest that he spent anywhere. He spent about a year and a half in Corinth, but he spent two years in Ephesus. Now you might say, well, two years doesn't seem like a very long time. It's a long time for an itinerant pastor. All right? It's a long time. It's the longest time that Paul spent there. And because Paul's calling was to go out and evangelize the whole world, two years was a significant investment in Ephesus. Now, I think one of the problems that we face in the church today is that we don't have that kind of stick to anymore. We have a very short attention span. We sort of flit and float from one thing to the next. How many of you had careers? Again, it's not a trick question. I'm not trying to mess you up. How many of you had careers? You started with something and you basically did the same thing the whole way through until retirement. All right? It's interesting. That is the way a former generation operated. That is not the way young people operate today. <coughs> when we were looking for colleges, took my oldest, who's graduating this year, and we were looking at schools, and one of the schools that he was looking at in Pennsylvania was Dickinson College in Carlisle. And quite frankly, I thought that's where he would go. Quite frankly, it's where I was pressing him to go at the time. <coughs> and so I, you know, that's probably the reason he didn't go there. But at any rate, we went up and we, um, he had done well in the SATs. He was going to get into Dickinson, and we took a tour of the campus and everything. And in the end, I was the one that changed my mind. I said, you are not going here. And part of the reason was we got to the end, and they have this thing where, you know, they bring in somebody and they speak to you about the college and what we can expect. Is there anybody went to Dickinson out there? I don't want to offend them right now. Um, <laughs> but um, it's a great school. Um, but I remember him sitting there, and, um, you know, they said, you know, at one point they said, oh, any questions? And I said, um, raise my hand. And I said, yes, I have a question as a parent. I said, um, when do they have to declare a major? Now, you're in college generally for four years. That's the plan. And I said, when do they have to declare a major? And he said, um, at the beginning of their fourth year. I said, what do you mean at the beginning of their fourth year? What, what are they doing for the first three years? And Dickinson is a fine school. And he said, well, sir, you have to understand that young people today don't think the same way that you do. And I said, well, will you please explain to me what you mean by that? And he said, what I mean is they don't think in terms of careers. They think in terms of jobs. And they may want to do one job for five years or six years, but then they may want to go off and do something else. And so in other words, he said he may want to be an English major and get a job working as an editor for Random House, but then he may decide he doesn't want to do that anymore and he'd like to go into dentistry. And he said, we want to give them the freedom to be able to do as many things as they possibly can over the course of their lives. And I turned to him and I said, we're out of here. <laughs> but you see, that's typical, isn't it? We don't have that sort of stick to -itiveness. We're in this for the long haul. I think that's one of the reasons why marriage is in such dire, such, you know, dire straits in our culture today. Because we have become convinced that you and I are entitled to happiness. Isn't that right? It's sort of ingrained in us. 
Life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. And so I am in, I'm, I'm in this for as long as I'm happy, but when I'm not happy anymore, I'm out of here. I think that a lot of that is just the result of the world in which we live. We, we do not have the ability to concentrate, to stay focused. We flit and we float. Part of that is due to things like this, isn't it? These things that sort of break down. I mean, it has to be, you know, a sermon is a sermon, whatever the topic is. Only the shorter it is, the better. Because we struggle, you see, with that sort of thing. Well, what's interesting is that Paul was in it for the long haul. He was committed. He was committed to doing this for as long as it takes. Not for as long as I feel like doing it, but for as long as it takes. And one of the Western texts, an ancient text, it's not, in fact, if you look at your Bible today, some of you are looking at a study Bible, you will notice that there is a footnote that says that Paul, and this is in verse 9, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And there may be a little number there or a footnote. And if you go down and you read the footnote, it says that he did that for five hours a day. Now you get me for one hour, and if you're indulgent, I go one hour and ten minutes. Paul preached, it says daily, five hours. Now when it says daily, you have to understand they did not have any kind of rules or regulations that we do. They didn't have, they didn't know anything about five-day work weeks or working nine to five. There were no such things as vacations in those days. I think when it says that Paul taught or preached for five hours daily, I think that's what it means. I think for two years, day in, day out, from dawn till dusk, basically, Paul preached and he taught until he felt that there was a significant number of people who had embraced the gospel and were equipped to go out and share it. Somebody asked me not long ago, they said, when are, we going to, when are you going to give us a vision for St. Philip's Church? I, I want to know what the vision is. You know, everybody wants a vision, and I do too. I, I believe that without a vision, the people perish. And so everybody says, well, what's the vision? What's the vision? Where are we, where are we going? I'm going to tell you something. God will never give a congregation a vision until they are ready to step into it. If the vision is to go out and turn the city of Charleston upside down, but our people are not equipped to do that, it's only going to be a source of frustration to put that kind of a vision before them. You'll be so far out in front of the people that they'll never see where you're going. So what are we doing right now? We are equipping this congregation. We are congregation ready because I believe that God does have something important for us and when we get to that point where there's a critical mass of people that know the gospel and not only know the gospel they are prepared and courageous enough to share the gospel then let me tell you something look out because God's going to lay a fantastic vision on us and it's going to be a world-class vision we're living in an, a global age my friends not just about saving Charleston, it's about saving the world. You realize that you can be in Egypt by plane faster than it takes you to drive from South Carolina to Maine? That's amazing, isn't it? That's the kind of world in which we're living. And the opportunities are extraordinary. So Paul went into a place like Ephesus, and he stayed there for two years, and he preached in season and out of season. 
Next thing Paul did is he followed up. I'm going to tell you something. All ministry at its heart is relational. I've often said when it comes to salvation, just like business, it's not what you know. It's who you know. Isn't that true about salvation? It's not what you know. There are many people out there who know a great deal about God, but they don't know God personally. The same thing is true in terms of our relationships with other people. It is about relationships. It's not just about preaching the gospel and walking away from people. That's one of the things that young people say today is so troublesome to them about the church. They're looking for a church that is authentic. They're looking for a church in which people are willing to invest time in them. An investment of time in other people's lives, let me tell you, that is a difficult thing to do, but it is absolutely essential to the sharing of the gospel. Paul invested his time. After he had left Ephesus, he didn't just forget these people. Here we are looking at an epistle that Paul wrote to Ephesus. He followed up with this church. He did the same thing in Corinth. That church was so messed up, he wrote at least two letters. I say at least two because there may have been others that we don't know about. In other words, Paul didn't say, well, I've done my job. I'm brushing the dust off my feet. He continued to work with people, to encourage people, to bring people along. If we're going to be a church that changes the world, we've got to be that kind of people. We are willing to make a significant investment of time and energy in the lives of other people. We've got to disciple them. I want to encourage those of you who are older to get into the habit of discipling young people. Now, I know there seems to be this huge generation gap. You know, I, I used to hear about that when I was a kid. Parents would say, oh, there's a huge gap between my generation and your generation, and I used to think, that's just baloney. Now I'm my father's age, <laughs> and I realize there is a huge generation gap maybe even bigger than the generation gap that existed in the 1960s. I mean, how many of you know how to work all those technological devices? I mean, I, one of the most frustrating things for me is my boys are home from college, and I will be watching something on the television. I can't get that thing to work no matter what. <coughs> and you know what they say? Give it to me, Dad. Now, what do I say to them? No, just, just show me how to do it. No, Dad, it's going to take too long. Just give it to me. How many of you ever had that experience? And, and so oftentimes you give it to them, and they fix it, and you're like, okay, well, all right. And then, you walk, and then they go away, back to college, and you're stuck there again. You, you just want to cuss it out. I mean, you really do. There's a big difference, isn't there? And it's so much easier when there is that huge difference to just say, I don't have the time for that. They're too different from us. But I'm going to tell you, if we're going to reach them with the gospel, we've got to invest time in them. They've got to know that this is not just ethereal theology. It makes a difference in their life, and it's ultimately about relationships. You make a relationship with a young person, you will gain a hearing, and they will begin to listen to you. But they're not going to listen to you if they don't know you and they don't trust you. Paul invested in the life of these people, and he followed up with them. With visits, he went back and visited them, and he wrote letters to them. And remember, this was in an age before automobiles, 
This was in an age before text messaging or emails. Paul had to travel in order to see these people. A significant investment of time and energy. He worked tirelessly in season and out of season. We're told that in his off hours, when he couldn't teach, when Tyrannus was using his lecture hall or whatever, Paul was busy what? Making a living. Making a living. Working hard. Now the question is, did Paul's strategy work? Well, it's interesting to note that the book of Acts says a church was established in Ephesus. So a church was established. As I said, it became a great church. The book of Revelation says it leads the list of the seven great churches. So evidently, Paul's efforts worked and a church was established. We're told also in Acts chapter 19, verse 11, that miraculous things begin to take place. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. A church was established. Miraculous things began to take place. Real change took place. It wasn't just that they listened to the gospel. They heard the gospel. You know there's a difference between the two? You can listen to something, but never hear it. Husbands have an amazing knack of doing this with their wives sometimes. <laughs> Are you listening to me? I'm listening. I'm not necessarily hearing you, but I'm listening. These people not only listened, they heard the gospel. How do we know that they heard the gospel? Look at verses 18 and 19. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing <coughs> and divulging their practices. That is, they confessed their sin, and they did it publicly, by the way. They acknowledged that it was a sin. And then it says this, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Some versions say 50,000 drachma. We're talking about, now it's very hard to put this into, you know, what would that be in today's currency? It's very, it's very difficult to do it. But if you calculate it on the basis of a day's wage, it would be somewhere in the range of $5 million. Now, I wouldn't press that too far, but what it does tell us was that the gospel had taken root in their lives in such a way that it was making a difference in their lives and in the way that they spent their money. Oftentimes, that is a very good indicator of a person's spiritual health and well-being. What is the biblical standard for giving? <coughs> Somebody said it. Go ahead and say it. The tithe, which is what? Well, I want to submit to you that that is not the biblical standard for giving. Here it comes. That's the Old Testament standard for giving. What's the New Testament standard for giving? Everything. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a what? A living 
sacrifice. You know what they say the problem with a living sacrifice is? It always crawls off the altar. <laughs> the biblical standard is everything we have. You were bought with a price, the New Testament says. You are not your own. You belong to God. Take a look sometime at how you spend your money. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty today. You may feel guilty, but that's not my intention. <coughs> God knows I have my own problems. But take a look sometime at how we spend our money. And, and, and if we think we say we're doing okay with 10%, I always like to say, when you go to a restaurant and you get good service, what do you generally pay the server? 20 per, 20%? Now that's impressive. I think 15% is the standard, 18% is really good service, and 20%, that's stellar service. So if you're giving God 10%, are you even tipping the Lord? Now, the reason I say everything matters is because you'll recall the story of the widow's mite. You remember that? And the disciples were so impressed by the wealthy that came and threw in their coins. And in those days, there was no paper currency. And when you went to the temple, there were these huge cone-shaped containers. And you threw in your coins, and depending upon how much money you threw in, you could hear the rattle. And so the more valuable the coin, the larger the coin. And so when these wealthy people came in and they threw in their coins and it just clattered down to the bottom, oh my goodness, the disciples were impressed. Wow. And then we're told there came this widow who threw in a coin that was worth the fraction of a penny. And the disciples didn't even notice her. And Jesus said, now look right there. I tell you, she has put in more than all the rest. For they gave of their abundance, but she threw in everything that she had. It's all about grace, my friends. It's not about law. There are some people that can afford to give 10% and they're not going to really miss it. There are other people that if they give 2% of their budget, it's a sacrifice. So there may be somebody like Bill Gates, and you say, well, it's impressive. Bill Gates gave $5 million. That's pocket change. That's why we said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? He looks on the heart. God is not simply interested in what you do, my friends. He wants to know why we are doing it. And we know that the gospel made a difference. What Paul was doing there, preaching the word in season and out of season, building relationships, investing time and energy in the lives of other people, made a difference. A church was established, and it was a church that changed the world. Why? Because the people themselves were changed. And they came out, and they gave up their old practices. They acknowledged their sins, and they turned from it. And what was the result? Acts chapter 19, verse 20, and the word of the Lord spread. You want to see Charleston changed? You want to see St. Philip's make a difference that transforms? How many of you are concerned about the world today? How many of you are concerned about our country today? You want to change it? Become like this church in Ephesus. Read, mark, learn, inwardly digest the scriptures, and they will transform you. 
And when you are transformed and you invest your lives in the others, others will be transformed because in coming to know you, they will come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. And when that happens, the word of the Lord will spread. The city will change. And the state will change. And the country will change. And when America is changed, the world will change. And all the earth will own him Lord. That's what happened in Ephesus. And you might say, well, that's a big order. Ah, yes, it is. But the resources at our disposal are so much greater than the resources at Paul's disposal. And you say, well, Paul lived in a different time. Let me tell you, the challenges that he faced are no different than the challenges we face. In some ways, they were even greater. But they made a difference. Now, I don't wish to imply that it was just all beautiful roses and magnolia and moonlight. There was difficulty. When you begin to make a difference like this in the lives of people, those lives begin to make a difference in a culture. And those who don't want to see the culture change, and there are those out there who don't want to see the culture change, let me tell you, they're going to do what? They're going to oppose you. It's interesting to note that in verse 21, we're told, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. And about this time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. When we come back next week, we'll take a look at that no little disturbance. The great riot that took place in Ephesus that in the end compelled Paul to leave that region. But what he left behind was a church. A church that would make a difference in the world. Well, two minutes left. Now, I'm prepared to go on, but I won't. <laughs> Questions? Elizabeth. That's right. <laughs> we'll talk a little more about this next week. We'll unpack it because it's important that we understand um, the significance of idolatry in the ancient world. And um, I think that's something that you and I have a hard time understanding. You know, we go to museums and we see, you know, the old idols that people worship. And we don't understand what a significant investment people made in idolatry in the ancient world. But I would go so far as to say we make significant investments in idols as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But yes, that, the, the value of those scrolls and those incantations on the market was significant. And we're going to see that it caused such a profound impact on the economy that that's what causes this riot. The gospel makes a difference in the economy, not just in terms of these scrolls, but in terms of the idolatrous practice of the day. There was a huge investment in all of this. There were lots of people involved in the worshiping of these idols and the serving of these temples and the making of the idols and so forth. And so when people began to abandon them, that made a huge dent on the economy. In the same way where I came from a part of Pennsylvania where steel was big. Two big steel companies, U.S. Steel and Bethlehem Steel. What happened when we started to ship out, when we started to buy our steel from other places rather than here in the United States. What happened to those towns? Well, I'll tell you what happened to them. What were the great steel cities became the Rust Belt. 
And let me tell you, people over there in western Pennsylvania in some parts, not necessarily where I came from, but from other parts, they are mad. They are angry people. Well, you see, that's exactly what happened here in Ephesus. When they stopped buying the idols, when they stopped reading the scrolls, buying the scrolls, selling the scrolls, and all of a sudden somebody began to get hurt. It made a difference in the economy. Are we any different today? No. Not really. I don't know if you remember, um, <coughs> during the first Gulf War, remember who the president was in the first Gulf War? The first President Bush, George H.W. Bush. He went in there and he built a coalition. I remember this. I was in college at the time. He built a coalition. Um, it was a worldwide coalition. He had the highest, I thought this was interesting, the highest approval rating of any president in the 20th century at one point. And he lost the re-election. And why did he lose it? Because of the economy. Well, let's see what happens to the economy in Ephesus and see what happens to Paul as a consequence next week. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Apostle Paul. Paul sets us an example. He went into a community and he preached the word in season and out of season. He didn't confine himself to any particular group. He freely shared the gospel with anyone who would listen. Jews and Gentiles, poor and wealthy, educated and ignorant. And he did it tirelessly, week after week, day after day, hour after hour, he invested himself in the lives of these people. And he did it because Jesus Christ had invested everything for him. Make us that kind of a people, Lord. Help us to realize that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Give us courage. Give us commitment. Give us the ability to run the long race sake of him who gave up everything for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, thank you.